examiner of life situations and problems. In our estimation, we see our problems clearly. We may know the source of them, and often we aggressively defend our own means of dealing with them in our very own way. We're indeed no different with God and his word when we, when we approach it day by day. We can approach our text today and perhaps even applaud God's upside-down way of doing things and perhaps even trust him to work in our own lives. We accept so long as he, in fact, sees what we see as our problems, that he attacks what we think is the source of those problems, that he adds his helping hand to what we see as the solution, and that he brings the security that we see as our need in the end. Now, truthfully, what we ought to do as we come to God's word is not come with an expectation that God will now finally meet all the things that we have decided we need, but rather open ourselves up to see the Lord speak to us about our true need and see him fulfill that in Christ. So it's my hope this morning that you'll ask the question, where do you find yourself? What scene are you in this morning as we see God's people found themselves in Micah's day? And that we, like them, ought to meet at God's appointed solution of the promised king to come from the small town called Bethlehem. So you have an outline in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. We'll take this in three um, movements, the first being the scene in verses 1 and the first part of verse 2, looking at the background of Micah. So Micah wrote to the two nations of both Israel and Judah, Israel in the north and Judea in the south, as the ten and two tribes respectively split long before this passage was written. Micah's name, interestingly enough, translates to who is like Yahweh, which is a very appropriate question to ask the audience of Micah in this very time, as they, these two kingdoms ought to have a heritage that should have led them to seek the Lord above anything else for all of their needs, all of their direction, but they had since chosen other means of idolatry to reach their own desired solutions for their own perceived problems. Micah's message is a pattern of declaring judgment followed by a promise of salvation, back and forth. Though through their sin, they had declared war on God, God would not abandon his promises to his faithful remnant and his people. He will send them a shepherd ruler to lead them on God's behalf. Unlike other kings before him, he would be the greater David, far greater than they've even hoped for or imagined in David's heir. God would send his only son to the scene of humanity's great need at just the right time. So let's consider this threat of the nations. The scene opens with a verse that is actually recognized by the Hebrew text as the last part of chapter 4. So for our purposes today, why we include 5.1 in looking at the rest of this section is to let it stand as a note on the state of the armies of Israel and of Judea. So this term in this beginning, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, is a phrase similar to what we mean when we say that Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. Okay, so daughter would therefore be used to create an adjective that would mean something like warlike. Though we see the current state of defense is not as it ought to be. Through God's people, though God's people believe themselves to be strong, the truth is that they are woefully unequipped to meet their enemies, as we 
learn very quickly in, verse, in the end of verse 1. The weakness of Israel pictures the weakness of all humanity since the fall. What God will do in sending a ruler out of a little, old, nobody, Bethlehem, is a reversal of expectations. But the reversal we tell ourselves is far worse. We need to see the gospel in every scene of life so that we might find the truth of our own weaknesses in order to lean on the Lord's strength in all scenes of life. So as we saw last week, oppression from enemies is sadly not unusual in the history of God's people. We saw in Isaiah 9 the idea of the yoke, the rod, the staff of the enemy of God's people, very present, very much leaning over, foreshadowing over God's people. And we see here today that there's not much hope for God's people under their current judge in verse 1. So look at verse 1 one more time. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And who is this judge? The period of the judges, the, the military leaders of Israel at the time, was long before this was written. So this judge that they are currently under must be referring to a king sitting in the seat of leadership over God's people. It's interesting that they use the term judge here, though, to speak of the king. It almost sounds kind of sarcastic. Because when you look at the book of Judges, which we're going to do next year, actually, you will see God choosing unlikely people and using them to bring about God's salvation to God's people. Not dependent at all on those people. I mean, the best one to look at, of course, is Samson. I mean, there was probably no more wicked judge than Samson himself. No more selfish judge. You could probably put Jephthah in there as a, a close race. But even these judges that were so wicked and so selfish, self-minded, God uses to bring about salvation for his people. And so this verse here, with the rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. There does seem to be a note of sarcasm because the judges of the Old Testament were the ones who were empowered by God to save his people. And the kings of Israel and Judah clearly are ill-equipped to do so. We know that because, of course, this judge is being struck on the cheek. The idea of striking on the cheek explains how ill-equipped they truly are. Their enemies are able to break through their line of quote-unquote troops and get to their chief and mockingly strike him down. The arrogance of this judge and of the people is a grievous sin. We may find ourselves more consistently leaning on God during very hard times, but if things are going well, do we continue to lean on the Lord? In our moments of apparent strength, in our moments where challenges seem less and things seem to be going well, do we still day by day depend upon him for every breath? How often we think we stand and yet so sudden we fall. Sickness appears, financial woes come to a head, an unmended relationship meets its last straw. The advent of Christ comes into a world largely unnoticed, but massively needed. Our pride subtly tells us we are good on our own and we know that the fallout, and yet, rather, we know that the fallout from our prideful attitudes is never far behind. At the close of the American Revolutionary War, General Cornwallis, the leader of all the British forces, having been forced back to Yorktown, Virginia, was so ashamed of being defeated by these Americans that he, who at all times upheld all the rules of war, wouldn't even appear to surrender his sword signifying the complete surrender of the British forces, but rather sent out a lower-ranked officer to deliver the sword and declare true surrender 
against the Americans. Look again at this idea of the judge being struck on the cheek. For Judah, the capture of King Zedekiah and his torture was one of the worst things that could have happened for the sake of their national pride. In 2 Kings 25.7, I don't have it up here, but if you want to read the fate of Zedekiah, Nebuchadnezzar captures every bit of Judea and kills the two sons of Zedekiah before his very eyes, before he puts out the eyes of Zedekiah. And he lives in servitude in Babylon for the rest of his days. It's a horrific scene to be the last that you lay your eyes on. The wickedness done by a wicked ruler is the result of abandoning God in order to better trust in ourselves. And that God warns such terrible calamity would be the punishment for turning for them, from them. It isn't to say that God delighted in such evil. We know he does not. Ezekiel 18.23 says, and this is the Lord speaking, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? So the answer to this rhetorical question is no, you do not have pleasure in the death of the wicked. And yes, you would rather that we repent, turn from our sin, and live by trusting in Christ. What we actually need to see, rather than an idea of thinking that God is finally, you know, happy that he can pour out judgment on this wicked people, rather we need to see that from long ago, God's plan was to redeem a small nation for himself and make it great. Apart from him, Israel was small weak, easily attacked and abused by evil nations from side to side. When the nation abandoned God, they in effect took themselves away from the goodness and provision of Yahweh and reverted to the weakness that they knew when they were apart from him. This should be a shocking truth for us to realize. Apart from Christ, where are you today, O Christian? Apart from him, does your life look any different? Are you ready to worship this great king who came as a small baby in a nobody town called Bethlehem? When we think about this idea of war and the war coming onto the people of God in this book, we should remember that the true spiritual battle today is, in fact, won by Christ. But it's not over. How can that be? If you've won the battle, that means it must be over, right? However, it is not. We still live in the midst of a very real spiritual battle. And we have very real enemies in this spiritual battle. The devil, the world, and our flesh, that being our old sin nature, who we used to be before knowing Christ, warring against our motives, our actions, our priorities. These three are our true and ever-present enemies. In Christ, there's not just hope of victory, but there is actual victory. So 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So there's a question coming after that. Has the Son of God appeared? Yes. Therefore, has he destroyed the work of the devil? Yes. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The devil's whole goal was to bring people down with him because he had been condemned. So in tempting Adam and Eve and in tempting people for generations and generations afterwards, his whole purpose is to stop people from enjoying who God is and bring them down to condemnation with him. But we know from the word, the son of God has appeared and he has destroyed the works of the devil. This may be a terrible illustration, but I'm going to go ahead and use it. Do you remember that old puppet show, the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer from way back when? I'm not saying whether you should or shouldn't let your kids watch it. 
or how you should feel about Santa Claus. But in the end of that movie, it's striking that when the abominable snowman comes out um, and they're all terrified of him and they're running away from him and then he shows up again with Yukon Cornelius and they're like, oh no, it's the, 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 the... And he's, don't worry about it. And he opens his mouth and what's missing? His teeth. Teeth are gone. I mean, when you... When, this is just maybe my childish brain, but when I think of... You know, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? It is gone. The sting of sin, the sting of death is in sin. We, we don't have anything to be truly, permanently fearful of in regards to the devil. Now, should we take him lightly? No, he knows what he's doing. He's the father of lies. He's good at what he does. But we do have victory available to us in Christ. Let's look at the next enemy, the world. John 16, 33 Jesus says, in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. These are in the past tense, you guys. The reason that he appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. At the cross, when he said it was finished, it's finished, he's won. And then in John 16, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart because I have, past tense, completed action, overcome the world. And then lastly, concerning the flesh, Romans 8, 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So here we find an active role and a little bit of a change here in regards, regards to our enemies. You know, truly, if I die in my sins without having been saved by Christ, I can't say, oh, the devil made me do it. He's the one who's truly guilty. God would say, yes, he is, and so are you. So my flesh, in one sense, is a greater enemy because it is, in fact, my flesh that if I live according to it, that condemns me to death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, this is all in the present tense. Our dealing with sin is a present tense, everyday kind of action. You don't get to say, I have put to death the deeds of the body because you're not perfect yet you still struggle with the temptation of sin that the devil throws at you and that the world throws at you and that your flesh just says, yes, let's go, give me more of this sin. I want more of that. You have to make war against that. In Jesus, our Emmanuel, our God who is with us, we have access to victory against all that would come against us. This doesn't mean we will never be harmed by our enemies. Rather, it means that the penalty of sin is dealt with and through him, we have the power to overcome the temptation to sin and to live dependent on him rather than self. This doesn't mean we will live in perfection, rather that we, will have, we have been given what we need to stand firm in Christ when tempted and grow in our victory over all sin. So look at this third section here, uh, letter C, the hope from a small town. Where does this hope come from? Bethlehem. An obvious and yet not so obvious choice. You might have heard me earlier say that this was a nowhere kind of place, but we all know, why is Bethlehem important before Jesus is born there? David was born there, right? That's where he came from. And so as you're hearing me say, well, this is a nowhere kind of place, you should be thinking, no, it's not. It's a very significant place, especially when we're talking about the heir of, heir of David, right? But when we look at the text here, you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, there's still this idea that Bethlehem, even though David came from it, there's still this looking at it going like, what's Bethlehem? What does that even mean? What's, what's important about Bethlehem? It's an obvious and yet not so obvious choice. 
in the eyes of the original general audience, choosing Bethlehem would kind of be like choosing Lima. And I'm only saying that because before I even applied for the job, I never heard of it before. And in fact, when I put it in my GPS, it still sounds like, like Google is trying to take me to Lima, Peru, because it mispronounces it every time. Have you noticed that? Anyhow, it would be almost like saying, God's going to send the Messiah to come from Lima, Ohio. And the rest of the world looking at like, Lima, Ohio, where is that? What is Lima, Ohio? Why not pick somewhere big like Dayton or Toledo, Cleveland? Small in the world's eyes, but made significant because of God's choosing. Though Bethlehem is small and obscure, the people of God who are paying attention would immediately realize the connection like you all did this morning, right? No, Bethlehem is important. David come from there. We, we ought to be looking at Bethlehem and expecting great things because David was born there. Is Bethlehem too little to be the birthplace of the Son of God? There are at least three things God is telling his people by choosing this small town. One, God's sovereignty and lack of dependence on anything outside himself to accomplish his plan. He can use whatever he wants. Two, God's attention and care for what is considered lowly and unimportant. He decides to use those kind of things in order to show his great power and to show that he is sovereign over all and that all people matter to God. And then thirdly, God's work to confound those who think too much of themselves who think that they might be able to read Micah and anticipating the coming of the Messiah and say, this must be a bad translation. Why Bethlehem? That doesn't make any sense. We should be looking to Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem's the capital. It's all about Jerusalem. Bethlehem is in the past. That's just where David came from. It's not about Bethlehem anymore. No, it is about Bethlehem. God is still going to use Bethlehem. Recall the most famous story of David, his first public battle with the giant Goliath. This giant's name preceded him with fear and trembling, but Goliath of Gath, with his great reputation, would be slain by some David of Bethlehem. When people began to tell the story, Goliath is dead and his head's been cut off by some kid from Bethlehem. There would have been shock. There would have been sort of, sort of like a, a certain response of a disciple to, to the hearing Jesus coming from Nazareth thing, saying, what good can come out of Nazareth? But the story of the gospel of Christ has hundreds of years of roots in small and unexpected things. Now, there should be a very easy application that could come to you and me who think ourselves to be no one of importance in the big world that we live in. Of course, the story of David and Goliath is not about me facing my problems, right? We know this, that the application is not to say, now you can go face your giants because God empowered David to do so. There's something greater than that that we can apply. It's actually foreshadowing of Jesus destroying the work of the devil and of the world and of our flesh and setting his people free. The birth of the Christ in Bethlehem points to the fact already, even at this pronouncement, that the Messiah will be the one to defeat the true enemies, not just of Israel, but of all mankind, because his greatness will be to the ends of the earth. Anyone who puts their faith in him will receive this great benefit of victory against their enemies. The alternative to trusting in Christ's victory is to be left to our own means of victory against sin. We have none. Armed with nothing, non-believers are doomed 
to pay the penalty for themselves in eternal separation and punishment. So let's look at the solution, the second section, verse 2b through 4a, a ruler for the Lord. That word for is very important because we've seen rulers from the Lord before. We've seen rulers chosen by the Lord before, but this is a ruler for the Lord. From Bethlehem comes the one who embodies all of this victory and so much more. And the only one who can truly rule for God on his behalf. As the latter part of verse 2 says, this ruler is not here to rule on his own authority or for his own plan, but rather he is one to be a ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. He's a unique one with a background that is more mysterious than any other that we've seen before. Where others have failed in many ways to truly represent God as their leader, as the leader of his people, Christ has not and will not ever misrepresent God and his leadership. He has in fact resolved the issue brought up long ago in Saul's day. The people who asked for a king were looking for a human king because all the other nations had human kings. They didn't want God himself for their king. They wanted to be able to see someone who was flesh and bones. Here God reverses that human mistake by sending his only son, completely different than any other humankind, and yet at the same time, he amazingly still ends up putting a human on the throne of David. Because at Christmas time, the thing we celebrate is God becoming flesh, becoming man, becoming part of us, one of us, rather, and an amazing mystery. His father, whom he loves, He seeks to glorify. And he seeks to reveal to us the solution to the sin we are guilty of in our weakness and that we are helpless to deal with. So this ruler who was to be for the Lord is also a ruler who is the Lord, the only one who's able to make a way for us. The king of Israel sat in a position of representing God's rule. And if they called the people to look to the Lord and walk in his ways, the king was successful. Unfortunately, there was not an overwhelming majority. I'm sorry, there was an overwhelming majority of bad kings who did the exact opposite, who led the people of God away from God, led them in their own ways. By leading people into idol worship, they threw away the representative role and basically acted as though they themselves were God. Christ came as the only unique one who could be and represent God simultaneously and perfectly. Coming from of old, of ancient days, this dual statement refers to Christ's origin. He is both eternal above all creation, equal with the Father and the Spirit, and linked to the ancient lineage of David. The only Son of God takes on flesh to fulfill the promise to David that a descendant would always be on the throne. He comes as the Son of God to be the great prophet, to perfectly represent God to his people, And he takes on humanity to become the perfect great high priest to go to God on behalf of all of humanity. He is indeed a ruler for the Lord as he alone has obeyed perfectly and thus can be the one to act that obedience on our behalf, to credit it to our account. He bears no weakness of selfish ambition on this throne. He is there to glorify his father in heaven and to save his people from their enemies. When the time has come, he, the Messiah, will cast, I'm sorry, will call the rest of his brothers to return to the people of God. 
Is it strange for us to consider Christ as our elder brother? He himself uses that language in a couple of verses that I don't have up here again, but you can see it in Matthew 12, verse 49. You can see it in Matthew 25, verse 40, 28, 10, and John 20, verse 17. But then Paul uses the idea in Romans 8, verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of, of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And let's throw out a heretical misunderstanding right off the bat. This idea of firstborn here should not lead us to think that in Christ's birth, he is a creation of God the Father. Okay, that would be Arianism. The church has dealt with that long, long ago, and yet it still rears its ugly head in some cultic um, portions that would call themselves Christians, but um, this is something that is a misunderstanding. This idea of firstborn does not hold an idea of creation, but rather primacy, him being the first among many brothers. And so what's being communicated here by Paul is that we have this amazing privilege through the Son of God, we who believe will become sons and daughters of God with him. This was his mission, and he, of course, is the only one who can accomplish it. Now we're called to call others to return to the Lord and become brothers and sisters in Christ along with us. Next one, a ruler who is a shepherd in the strength and majesty of the Lord, one who cannot be defeated by any opposition brought to him. He will have no temporary rule like those kings who came before him. He will shepherd his people in the limitless strength of God himself. As the shepherd of his people, no enemy will prevail over him to come anywhere near taking one of his sheep. John chapter 10 is this great chapter regarding um, Jesus talking about and explaining what it means that he is the good shepherd. And I wish I could put all of these verses up here, but I took just John 10, 29, where Jesus says, My Father, who has given them, that is the sheep, to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. If you are his sheep today, you are his sheep forever. Not because you're able to perform all the good sheeply duties. Not because you make no foolish decisions. Not because you are never weak. Not because you are so very smart. You are forever his sheep because he is a good shepherd. Because Jesus does the job of being the shepherd. Because he has laid his life down for you and taking it again, he claims you as his own and takes you in his hands with a strength that can be overcome by no one. And I'll even throw this in here, not even yourself. Sheep love to run away. They love to go and look out for whatever it is that catches their eye. And it's the job of the shepherd to bring them back into the fold against their wishes if necessary. No matter how long it takes for them to realize that was a bad idea. If my salvation depended in any way on myself, I would lose it immediately. There'd be no hope of me keeping it. I would fall at the first opportunity. Rather, Jesus is the good shepherd. And we see that prophesied here. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. He's not one who's going to look back and be like, Oh, you know what? I'm not really going to miss that sheep too much. I'll just let him go off and do his thing. Maybe he'll come back. That'd be nice. No. He's the good shepherd. He will rule in a way that displays the majesty of God. Look at Hebrews 1, 3. 
He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. How did God create in Genesis 1? What great tool did he use? His word. Let there be light, and there was. So, there, again, to, to think back and wonder, is Jesus a created being that God has sent? And no, Jesus is divine. He is God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. You're not allowed to say that about anybody besides God. And the Bible makes this claim about Christ to show that he is himself God. He is God the Son. There's no other who can rule in such a way. And there's no other who can empower us to proclaim with power the majesty of the Lord that we serve. Last section, the security versus the end of verse four to the beginning of verse verse five. It says, they will dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. If nothing else fills you with great confidence and joy in the Lord today, Maybe it's this section right here. They shall dwell secure. Do you wonder what all this might mean? Why we might need to constantly hear of the greatness of Jesus Christ? Could it be that we're a forgetful people? Could it be that our circumstances seem so large to us and we, like the little town of Bethlehem, feel so small and unimportant? We ought not feel guilt as we are reminded of the praiseworthiness of Christ, as though the point is to say, praise him, better for crying out loud. Do a better job at this. Come on. Rather, our great Savior who is worthy of praise has gone to great lengths to make sure we know his love and he who needs nothing from us but deserves all of us calls us to himself as the good shepherd who will cause his people to dwell in security. Will we have perfect and complete and ever present security right now? No, there's still opposition. There's still an enemy out there. As we said, the battle is won, but it's not over. Security today does not promise all the time protection from harm, but a peace that passes all understanding of that harm. Take a moment sometime and read from the Fox's Book of Martyrs. You'll see story after story of Christians who have been placed in a position to either reject Christ and live or to stand firm in their faith in him and be harmed or even killed. And I heard recently uh, in a sermon, I think Piper mentioned this, uh, Corey Ten Boom asked her father, um, this was during World War II and, um, you know, talk of hiding Jews from Nazis and things like that's going on. And she asked her father during all of this, if I ever am placed in a position where I have to either deny Christ and live or proclaim him and die, I don't know if I'm going to be strong enough or brave enough or whatever I need to be enough to do so. And her father gave her such a good illustration. He said, when you go on a train ride, do I give you the money months before for your ticket or right before you get on the train? She said, well, you give it to me right before you get on the train. So it is with the Lord when he grants faith to his servants to endure persecution and to endure opposition from this world, he gives us that grace in the moment that we need it. Such that right now, the thought of somebody bursting in here and bringing persecution right to our doorstep sounds terrifying to us. But in the moment that it would happen, 
if we have put our faith in Christ, he will provide that great courage, that great confidence in him alone to overcome any opposition. Not because we suddenly see harm meaning nothing. Harm and pain are real. But because in that moment, we will be faced with the decision, is Jesus the good shepherd? Is he here? And does Jesus attach himself to the persecution of his people? Yeah. We're called the body of Christ. When Paul was converted, what question did Jesus ask him on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He identifies with the suffering of his people in some special, mysterious way. So he gives us grace day by day to endure in power all that the world has to throw at us. When we set our hope fully on him and endure trials, holding fast to that hope, we will not be put to shame. Let's look at this fact that his greatness will be to the ends of the earth. Christ has made a name for himself at the cross, one that has made its way to the ends of the earth and continues to pour out into all places yet to hear of his great fame. And the way he's chosen to continue the spreading of his fame is through our testimony of faith in him. Do you consider evangelism as spreading his greatness to the ends of the earth? Perhaps any fear or, or uncertainty we face regarding gospel proclamation could be done away with by the goal of making his greatness known that Jesus would receive the reward for his sufferings. It's not a bad motivation for us to look at our non-believing friends and say, apart from Christ, they're doomed to hell for eternity. I have to tell them. But the truth is, is that if that's our only motivation, a day will come where we look at someone and say, it's what they want. I have no power to tell them otherwise. And we'll give up. The only reason I can say that is because I know I've done it. I've looked at people that I know don't know Jesus. And I've said, well, maybe God's given them up to what they really want. Maybe God has said, your will be done. But when we infuse the greater truth that Christ is worthy of the reward for his suffering, there's no greater motivation than that to make him famous everywhere we go. Perhaps it's this Christmas season full of awe and wonder at the incarnation of Christ that we could renew our zeal to make Christ known. Here we find great satisfaction in life because it is the reason we are here. And in the midst of all of this, of all the spiritual warfare, of all of the, the pressure of the great commission to make him known and to start conversations with people about Jesus and hope that we get an opportunity, he says in the end of our passage today, he shall be their peace. It's probably clear to us that just knowing about Jesus does not bring peace. But to know him, to be with him, to know he is near us, that he is Emmanuel, that is our peace. The Prince of Peace does not send peace from far away from himself, but brings peace by being where we are. Having accomplished his work at the cross, being at work through his people now to bring his kingdom to the earth, confounding all earthly wisdom by choosing small things to bring his glory, Jesus brings solution to every scene of life and is our peace. 